0: and good day. This is Tabitha. You are listening to White Wellness Radio. Today is August 25th, 2023, and this is From Victim to Victor. That's the name of the broadcast. First live broadcast in quite some time, I think since July uh, 12th. Been doing a lot of uh, inner work, uh, transmutation, transformation. And that song that you just heard right there was The Land of Confusion by the band Genesis. That was 1986, quite some time ago. And welcome to everyone who's in the chat. We have Epiphany and we have Josh under the header of Expedition Esoterica. Epiphany is saying that she missed me. Yeah, I miss seeing you here in the chat. I know the last couple of times um, you weren't here in the chat, so it's good to see you in the chat. And I see you just said that you like the disturbed cover of this song I just found out that they had a cover of this song when I was looking to play this song for the show so that was that was news to me but yeah it's a good show it's a good song it'll be a good show I liked that song quite a bit when I was a youngster if any of you are old enough to remember the weird video with the weird uh faces they're kind of like uh, I guess you'd say they're puppets there's uh, Ronald Reagan is in the video uh it's, it's a weird one, but I figured it was an appropriate song to play because this is a land of confusion or confusion, shall I say. It's a zoggy zog world. Epiphany saying she remembers the video. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, and of course, I played the version that wasn't the video because the video kind of has some dialogue at the beginning and the end because it's kind of like a, I guess you'd say it's kind of like a mini movie in, in many ways, but it's a good video if you haven't seen it yourself. It's a, it's a weird one. So yeah, it's a weird, zoggy-zog world. I do my best. It's easy. I'm not really interested to uh, avoid the news as much as I can because it's just um, same shit, different day type of thing. So let's start this show. It's going to be a pretty groovy show. We're going to be talking about the victimhood consciousness, which is all throughout the um, the media the society, the culture, the alternative media, the radical media, everywhere. It's just what they want us to be and how we can break out of that modality. And just a lot of other good um, tidbits we'll be discussing about in the typical white wellness fashion. But first, the word used to be the word of the week. It's just the word of the show. Let's call it that from now on. I've got six of these forgotten English cards left that I got at the Cloisters, which is a pretty groovy museum uh, for anyone who's ever in New York or lives in New York. It's a museum that focuses on medieval art. Uh, It's a great place, and I got these in the gift shop when I went there quite some time ago. If you ever happen to find yourself in New York, that's one of the fun things to do is to check out the cloisters. But first, the word of the show. All right, let's pull it. That word is bogut. B-O-W-G-E-T-T, boget. This Middle English word was borrowed from the French bouche, a small leather bag, derived from the Latin bulga. By the 17th century, the spelling had become budget, as it had remained until the present. By 1700, the meaning of the word had come to include the contents of the pouch or wallet, a development that allowed it to take on the financial connotation of projected English treasury expenses. By the mid-1800s, the meaning had broadened to include the money available for use by an individual, its common meaning today. So bogat, I guess, means money. Interesting one, considering that money is is a big topic these days. It's been a big topic for a while, but... With the prices of a lot of things these days um, becoming very uh, cost prohibitive, uh, it's interesting to think about how that all works. And then we're actually going to be talking about ways to um, help with your food budgeting, because food is one of those things that, gosh, it's gone up in price, especially here on the coast in New York. Food is already expensive here in New York, but it has gotten really, really expensive since Oyen AI. It's like ridiculously expensive. Uh, Even for basics, it's gotten really expensive. If you try to eat in season and make all your own food and and do a lot of these uh, practices, it's still very expensive. And takeout is like, forget about it. Even shitty takeout is really expensive. All right, so let's kick off this show, and I want to talk a little bit about um, sickness, dis-ease. And this comes from a book, gosh, 1973. It was already apparent back in 1973 that there was sickness and dis-ease in the world. And I look back at pictures of 1973 or talk to humans that I know who were alive in 73. And it seems like the world was a lot less of a diseased place back in 1973. But anyway, this is an article from a magazine called Plain Truth. It's probably defunct these days. A lot of these um, things of yore are now gone. Maybe you can find it somewhere on the internet in an archived place. But here we are. What is the real sickness? To understand the answer, put yourself in the shoes of a modern youth. Remember, this is a youth from like 50 years ago. If you were 20 years old today, in 1973, what would be the exciting goals or values you could build your life around? The family? It's generally unhappy and falling apart. Religion? It's floundering. Defense of national ideals? They hardly exist. Cities? Growing more polluted, more distant from nature. We seem to place little value on trees, grass, pure water, the sunrise, and the sunset. World news is replete with violence, oppression, aimlessness, death, and the threat of nuclear warfare. Not much has changed, I guess, besides even more of this fear propaganda, pornography, in modern day. Meanwhile, the affluent nations have automobiles, washing machines, wall-to-wall carpeting, Eight to five jobs, but they lack long-lasting purpose needed to really enjoy the best from life. There seems to be no particular purpose, no catalyst to make it all worthwhile. To say the future does not look altogether bright for the human race is an understatement. The real sickness lies in not knowing where the world is heading. The sickness is not having the true spiritual knowledge or a purpose in living. Exactly. That is the real dis-ease. It's not having the spiritual knowledge. And of course, a lot of this has been shrouded and hid from us, right? Um, And how many people have no purpose to even live, right? Maybe they aren't suicidal, because that's probably an extreme um, way to go. But where is the true spiritual knowledge? Where is the purpose in living? How hard is it to slice through All of this uh, bad information, the the twaddling, the miasma, to actually find the truth. And the problem, oftentimes, is with a lot of these habits that a lot of us form, and of course, it's very easy to fall into escapism in the modern world, is that um, it's not so much what it does do, like pull us away from the stress and make us maybe think differently or help us soften because we're unable to relax, but What's more deleterious about these substances and ill habits is what they cannot do. And these ill substances and habits cannot solve the problems that desperately need the solving. And they can't give a person direction to an aimless life. And they cannot bring happiness or purpose to an unhappy world. So all these cheap hits of dopamine are just ways to escape the mundane uh, miasma the just the droll um, nature of the world it's it's just it's a pause from the sludge it's not a recreation or a transformation of the sludge so that's one of the dangerous things about a lot of these habits and sometimes with some of these habits it's not like it's a full-on thing like let's say someone's using something like um, methamphetamine or heroin where you go to zero to 60 pretty quickly with that. These slower habits that can keep someone in a a daze, a glaze for many decades are in some ways, I think, more insidious because there's not that connotation of, wow, this is really, really bad or what is this doing? It's just kind of a slow malaise, a slow languid sinking into this aimlessness and purposeless life. Where the true spiritual knowledge is nowhere to be found, and it lacks purpose in living. So the real solution, not to slip into these, um, you know, these unsavory habits and um, uh, utilizations, the real solution is to create a better alternative, and that alternative involves a recognition of the true meaning and purpose of life. Because when we slink and slip into these uh, beliefs and these ideas and these lifestyles or really death styles in many ways, slow slow suicidal death styles, it keeps us from living in a victorious way. And it's easy for us to kind of feed on the information out there about how everything is terrible in the world. Um, everything's going to pot. Everything's going to shit. Um, it's all going to be over soon. It's easy for us to feed into that mentality when we feel that we don't have a purpose or we feel aimless. So there's a lot to be said for this. And getting this true spiritual knowledge, I think, is foundational to any of our futures. Regardless of who we are, we can all go about this in a different way. There's many ways to God, right? It's not just like there's one path for everybody. But I think one of the more important ones is, is keeping things in check. Um, especially when it comes to having a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet. And of course, you could be eating all the greatest foods, but living in a very terrible environment, maybe hating your job, um, maybe hating the people who you live with, maybe having a foul circadian rhythm, maybe taking the wrong supplements. So it's really a full package deal. Um, But the crux, of course, is, is that these good habits can catapult you into your purpose and into the fold of spiritual knowledge. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, where should I start here? I've got so many things. Oh, yeah, I had this interesting post that I posted um, the other day on the Racial Science uh, channel. That's one of my Talmudgram channels. I have a couple of Talmudgram channels. Um I only have three actually these days. I have, of course, the white wellness, as many of you know, was um, removed and never recovered. Um, very unfortunate. I was able to save the chat though, which was a boon. and I had taken my um, Aryan channel on um, sexuality and yoga and fertility and basically made that into the white Wellness channel calling it now Tabby Yuga, backslash, backslash white wellness and that's t.me backslash sexy and that's like kind of like my main channel and then i have white wellness cooking of course which is recipes and that feeds into the tabby yuga channel and then i have my racial science channel which also feeds into the tabby yuga channel which interestingly i think is my no it's my second most popular channel in regards to numbers of subscribers but it's the one that gets the most amount of hits it focuses on um poly, you know, monogenist, no, polygenist um, racialism, which is a belief that we all come from a different source. It's it's the, end. this is out of Africa, and also focuses on uh, exposing transsexualism. And it's funny, uh, I've actually seen people talking about on tel- Telegram how they hate this channel, yet they're following it, and it gets lots of shares and lots of likes. So it's almost like Vegans who go on to like those carnivore channels and they're like, you're all going to die, you pieces of shit. You know, fuck you for eating animals. It's, it's kind of like that, which is funny. But I posted something the other day. We we're talking here about sickness and lack of purpose and spiritual dis-ease and lack of knowledge. And I was like, what are the core mental illnesses of the modern age? And the core mental illnesses of the modern age, I believe that there are four. Number one would be veganism. And I think that it actually has a lot of layers to it. I don't think it's just veganism. I think it it goes deeper than that. And I think the majority of us probably grew up in the fold of that in some way. Like I even know people who are you know they they eat meat, but they're afraid of eating meat on the bone, and that's that's weird. I mean, meat comes from an animal that has bones and tendons and ligaments and blood and and, and skin and and fur and. And all those things. So there's there's layers of this, but it's it's really um, a weird relationship with the natural in many regards, which makes sense why a lot of these OIVE organizations are pushing veganism. Of course, not all they all OIVEs are all pushers of veganism. Are you know not all OIVEs are vegan, and not all pushers of any of that you know are all um, OIVEs. Some aren't. It's just it's a weird it's a weird illness. Um, and it goes deep, especially for someone like me, as many of you know, I, I grew up um, mostly in that um, meatless religion. Um, I didn't really have, I think, steak until I was 24 years old. And it was at a restaurant, a steakhouse when I was working at a dental lab many years ago. And people there had found out that I had never eaten meat. And they're like, oh, try this. And it was a piece of steak I think it was a porterhouse and the person who had ordered it decided to get it basically like well done so it was like a hockey puck or like shoe leather so I took a taste and I was like oh my god I'm like red meat that stuff is gross and like it tastes horrible and it wasn't until years later that I actually had it again when it was cooked <clears> properly and I was like oh wow that's what it actually tastes like it can actually taste good that's pretty amazing so I think that's a big illness. Uh, I think it's deeper than many of us are even aware of because so many of us are inculcated or grew up in that meatless um, fold. And if you look back at an interesting show I did probably about two, or three years ago called Fiber Menace, I talked about the history of the vegetarian movement, the history of you know bran and, and fiber. And of course, you know, the fiber that you're getting from you know fruits and vegetables is very different than you know loading your bowels with bran you know like you could at least say that that stuff is more natural albeit you could also argue that many of the plants nowadays both fruits and vegetables are a far cry from what they were many many years ago you could even say something like broccoli isn't like the original version of like a cruciferous vegetable you could really get into it in like a deep way but uh, you'll look into, if you do, if you go back to that show, if you remember listening to it, if you've been a long time listener, that a lot of the vegetarian stuff was all based on religion. It was all based on the fact that um, sex and lovemaking was thought to be this um, lustful and impure thing. And it was that um, uh, P.O.S. Uh, Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg, who wanted to remove meat from the diet because he believed that it made people horny. And, you know wanted to have sex i don't think that guy actually even ever had intercourse with his wife so some really weird things wouldn't it make sense that our natural diet would make us horny uh yeah obviously it would make total sense and now we have this really weird distorted world where people are vegan and eating all these packaged goods they don't even know what sex they are um, either and they they need to like look at all this crazy shit online to even get off. I mean, this is just completely and totally just out there and just. If that thing had been written today that I read earlier about the sickness in this uh, world, how do you think it would have been reflected? If seventy three was sick, what does twenty three look like, right? So that's the number one mental illness in the modern age is veganism. Number two, of course, is obviously transsexualism. That's crazy. Um, If you don't know who you are by looking downstairs, you've got major, major problems. If you believe that there's more than just two sexes, you've got major problems. If you're going to use intersex or what I like to call hermaphroditism, which is basically someone who has not fully cooked genitals, they are actually one of the sexes because their chromosomes would uh, show that they just have um, genitals that don't reflect the full formation of having a vagina or a penis people are using that now There's actually a new movie I saw becoming attraction for it last time I was at the theater and it was um, basically the LGbtp movement is utilizing um, sexually ambiguous individuals to promote the transsexual movement by tacking on you know lgbtpq I, A, V plus. I I add the V and the P. The V is for veganism. The P is for pedophilia because that's all part of this. It's everything that's against nature. Everything that a normal human wouldn't do, anything that an animal would reject is all part of the LGBTP. But they are using um, people who are sexually ambiguous, who are hermaphrodites to further their um, genocidal, pedophilic uh, agenda. So obviously number two on the list of modern mental illnesses would be transsexualism number three would be racial unconsciousness this is a big one a lot of people can see through the veganism can see through the transsexualism that's great but we need to be able to see through all of them number three is racial unconsciousness and there's a lot of that these days a lot of people wrapped up in the idea of white guilt and white privilege uh, venerating um savage negroes like the whole floyd thing the george floyd thing which i think looking back in retrospect was a psyop and it was a psyop to trigger people to either speak ill about other races or it was for people to basically break down and start um you know pandering for the other side you know for for not people who like for what for libshit whites to start pandering to um majorities and uplifting them and that was perfect timing with that happening uh, right on the cusp of the beginning of OID AI. OID AI like broke I think in uh Wu-Tang China back in like uh what was that like December of 19 and then it like kind of like gained steam here in the states like March or April of 2020 and then the Floyd thing happened back in like uh late May so that was like perfect to blend the whole agenda into one another but the racial consciousness piece is huge and I think that a lot of people are going about it in kind of like a crude and and brutish way and they're spending all their time just um pointing out the um shortcomings of other races as opposed to thinking how can we lift ourselves up right how can we make ourselves um you know, not feel that we're guilty, not feel that we're privileged, you know, focus on connecting with ancestors, connecting with um, the food of our ancestors, spending time in nature, um, finding out how we want to cultivate a natural spirituality, you know, moving away from the Abrahamic thing, which of course many of us grew up in the Abrahamic fold. That's a big thing for a lot of us and a lot of us cling to that because we're looking for something to kind of nourish and soothe us. So the racial unconsciousness I think works in two ways either have these people who are completely blind to it the lib shitters the a lot of the radical feminists are completely blind to it very aware of transsexualism which is bravo but uh, completely blind to the racial unconsciousness and willing to um, basically turn their back on half of the white sex basically white males or white men. A male to me is a man who's not a man. I would always refer to a man that wasn't a man by calling them male. It's kind of like a downgraded way to speak. But we have a lot of that going on. Or we have these people who are racially aware, but they lack the consciousness to be a high-class racialist, and instead they're just saying um, lowbrow things. Like, I mean, if I wanted to, not that I would, I could drink a six pack and I could get on here and just start shooting off ethnic slurs and telling all types of jokes about other races. It might even be a more popular show if I was doing that. Um, But that's not really my goal because doing that, it's like what it just said in that book that I was reading. If I was doing that, I would just be kind of um, stewing in this escapism as opposed to really cultivating any spiritual knowledge or true purpose. And no one's true purpose is to get shit faced And to uh, speak ill of other races, you know, I mean, there's a lot of other things you can do with your time, you could engage in pranayama, you could make a delicious meal, lovemaking, taking a hike, you know, drawing, there's a lot of things you can do. So the racial unconsciousness is kind of like a forked thing. It's either people who are aware, but get stuck in that low level consciousness of racial awareness, or it's the people who are just absolute shit for brains who um, basically hate themselves or, you know, hate white men and are just willing to bend over backwards or in the back door for, you know, majorities. And then finally, it wouldn't be a list of mental illness without referring to the fourth one, Oya AI. And I think with Oya AI, we have to kind of encompass um, all of allopathy. And I'm not really talking about the stuff that saves lives. I'm not talking about... um, You know, fixing a bone, ER. I'm talking about the methodology of allopathy, which is known as other suffering, allo meaning other, pathos coming from the word passion meaning suffering. And of course, Oyed AI is a prime example of other suffering. You believe that there's something out there that's going to hurt you, you manifest uh, a dis ease, whether it's an emotional dis ease, illness, or sickness, or detox. That's too uncomfortable for you to deal with. So then you go to Dr. Z and you go there for the other suffering. And then Dr. Z gives you something and it makes you suffer in a bunch of different ways. If they actually told people that was their gig, that they gave you something to um, ameliorate or um, relieve your... Um, initial symptoms that was going to make you ill over time in different ways, I don't think most people would go for it. So that is a mental illness if you believe in that system. So that's that's the list right here. And when you believe in these modern mental illnesses, veganism, transsexualism, racial unconsciousness, and Oye you are stuck in the victim mentality very, very clearly stuck in it. Um, so these are the four things we have to liberate ourselves from. And the more we liberate ourselves from this, the closer we get to nature, the closer that we get to our roots, the more we trust ourselves, the more of a natural life we're able to live and the more connected we'll really be to what we really want to be. So many of us in this, you know, supposed movement talk about, you know, wanting to be people more like our ancestors, you know, wanting to maybe live off the land, which may not be a reality for many of us right now, and and that's okay. But if we're able to shift our consciousness away from this victimhood into this consciousness of being a victor, a victory, uh, being victorious, we can really make good changes. So I think it starts with many of, of these things, and it starts with comprehending what is a mental illness and what creates victimhood and how we can shed that skin much like a snake and then go on to other things and live in a way that really reflects who we want to be. Because when we shed those mental illnesses, then we can really start to live with our spiritual knowledge. And I think oftentimes spiritual knowledge isn't just like finding some text of your that you like you know, like reading the Eddas or reading the Vedas. Like, yeah, that's groovy and everything. But I think spiritual knowledge is really about knowing yourself. I think that's the crux of spiritual knowledge because then that really gives you purpose in living. If you know who you are, you have a purpose in living. And it's so easy these days. I know how easy it is to fall into the constant distractions and to really feel like we don't know ourselves. I mean, anyone who looks down there between their legs doesn't have a clue what they're looking at and is thinking about getting it cut off or cut up or whatever, that person doesn't know themselves. I mean, come on, you know? Just like someone who's afraid to eat meat on the bone, they don't know themselves. Someone who has racial unconsciousness, they don't know themselves. Someone who thinks of something invisible walking through the air isn't to kill them, they don't know themselves. So really the way to win this game is to know ourselves. And of course, that all is going to be different for all of us. But I think it starts with having these healthy habits, because when we have this kind of skeleton, if you will, we're less likely to fall for their sludge. And their sludge is 24-7. They live, we sleep. So one of the best ways, of course, is just to not um, engage in it, right? Or when you see something online, know their recipe. They always use the same recipe. Different ingredients, with the same recipe. Let's take a Gandhi at the chat right here. Epiphany is saying the Seventh-day Adventists are major pushers of veganism. Yes, absolutely. And I believe I spoke of that when I did that Fiber Menace show. They are big pushers of it. Um, They are linked, I think, to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, the PCRM. So they do a lot with that. And all of the major... Uh, universities and colleges here in America, like Harvard, Cornell, all these big, like Ivy League schools, all of these schools are still putting out information telling us eat the seed oils, eat the polyunsaturated fats, and that the saturated fats will cause all of the diseases, which, of course, we know it's a hoax. Now, do we want to be eating like 80% of our diet in fat? I don't think so. I don't think that that's evolutionary consistent, like in the idea of when people are doing these keto diets, it usually calls for like 80% fat, 20% protein. So technically, it's a low protein diet, it's really very um, similar to veganism. And of course, it doesn't have any carbohydrates or very low carbohydrates. And the most important thing that Zog wants you to do with your diet, there's two things that Zog hopes for. Zog hopes that you overeat fats, and that you especially overeat um, rancid, toxic, you know, tranny fats, polyunsaturated fats. Zog is banking on that, and Zog is also banking on the fact that you eat the plant foods that have the most amount of anti-nutrients and plant toxins. So, whether you're a vegan or whether you're doing keto, you could be eating tons of really poor quality fat. And you can be eating a lot of vegetables that are loaded with oxalic acid. And we've talked a little bit, I think, about oxalic acid in the past on some broadcasts. We've talked a lot about, there's so many anti-nutrients in plants. I'm sure many of you listening are familiar with these, just listening to other broadcasts talk about it. There are oxalates, there are um, goitrogens, there are uh, lectins, there are uh, saponins, what else are there, Uh, tannins, phytates, Uh, there's a ton, of course, and the thing is that these will interfere with the absorption of vitamins and minerals and other nutrients. So something that's interesting, let's say you're eating something like uh, red meat or oysters, which are good sources of zinc, if you're eating that with certain um, plant foods, you'll actually absorb less of the zinc that is in the red meat or the oysters because you're eating something that kind of blocks the absorption. So that's why oftentimes when people move away from some of these plant foods, and I don't believe that all plant foods are bad. I think it's kind of an extremist perspective to say on the vegan side, all animal foods are bad. And then we have the reverse of that with the strict carnivory approaches that say all plant foods are bad. I think we have to ferret out within that because, of course, within the scope of plant foods, some of them have more anti-nutrients than others, right? And then in the scope of animal foods, some of them could be loaded with polyunsaturated fats or loaded with heavy metals, right? And, of course, maybe that composition was very different years ago, like maybe when the majority of hogs and birds that are used for meat in this country, or even for eggs, were being fed in a more ancestral or holistic way. Their lipid profile was more um, was more appetizing. And then of course with some of the things that are high in heavy metals like fish, that wasn't necessarily a concern before the oceans were very polluted. So I think we have to take a nuanced look at this and um, really discern it from not just black and white of all plants bad all animals bad and it's very easy to fall into those those sides zog loves us to take a side you know lib shit, um republican right white black which i guess we should take a side on that to an extent but that we don't want to pit ourselves against each other we want to see the nuance of it of course keep to ourselves in, in that situation but they're always looking to create this dichotomy, this dialectic, right? That's one of their their hallmark things that they do. They're even looking to create a dialectic within a side too. They love doing that also. They'll create a dialectic even on the same side of something to create problems with that. Look, look what they've done with the whole pro-white movement. They've created. Um, people taking sides within a movement where people agree on, like usually like a few core issues. So they love that, right? So we really have to look at this from a very nuanced perspective. And when we get out of that victim consciousness, it's much easier for us to see things from uh, a normal perspective, as opposed to just saying this is all bad, this is all good, right? So I think it really takes maturity to kind of go about that and. And see it as opposed to just deeming something 100% bad. I mean, with certain things or people, we may not have to deem them 100% bad, but we may not want to associate with it, you know, or associate with them or make it like a staple, right? So I think we have to have this nuanced perspective where we can see things for how they really are and then work it into our life as we see fit. So before I get into more of this information about um, oxalates and things like that, I just want to mention something really zoggy that I saw in the latest Weston A. Price Quarterly magazine. Um, it's about a cereal that could boost sleep. Yeah, this is pretty zoggy. Um, and I know, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the stuff. The Weston Price Foundation puts out, albeit I still like to get the magazine because there is good information in there. I think they're still kind of focusing too much on OID AI a little bit. It's like their whole magazine is just dominated by talk of OID AI, which personally I'm kind of over talking about OID AI. It's like I rather talk about things that are more interesting, albeit I think that the news must be feeding some people some information about OID AI because as of lately, I've seen people in the chattel feed mask or the costume out at the store and things like that. So So can cereal boost sleep? Huh. Well, that would be um, a shit for brains thing to think. So many folks in our caffeine-addicted world can't sleep these days. Maybe it's not just caffeine. Maybe it's people who are staring into their phone um, having that blue light blast their face and their thyroid like later into the day, you know it's there's so many things there's so many foul habits people have besides caffeine, albeit coffee is not a good habit. So now the cereal companies have a solution for you. Post Consumer Brands, maker of a Raisin Bran and Grape Nuts and Fruity Pebbles, has launched a line of cereals as nutrient-dense before bed snacks. And this is something else. I used to be a proponent of the before bedtime snack. It's not really something I promote too much anymore. You should really be getting your calories in earlier in the day. Um, Snacking before bed, I think, can actually be a little um, not so great for your hormones. It can actually raise cortisol, like a stress hormone, and it can also mess with um, blood sugar. So if you need a snack before bed, chances are you're not eating enough during the day. So these cereals, nutrient-dense before bed snacks. We know, of course, these aren't nutrient-dense. This is a hoax, obviously. So these cereals are called sweet dreams. The cereals are supposed to boost melatonin. Okay, We don't want to exogenously supplement with melatonin that can cause thyroid issues. We want to live in a way that our circadian rhythm is set so we are able to secrete melatonin. Wouldn't that make more sense? to live according to how we're supposed to live as opposed to band-aiding our shitty lifestyle with thyroid-suppressing melatonin. So these cereals have melatonin. They also have notes of lavender and chamomile and added vitamins like mineral, like zinc and iron. Of course, we want to get zinc primarily from our food. Zinc is not the worst thing to supplement. We definitely don't want to be supplementing iron. We've been through this many times on the show. go back to the show Graphene Goyams and we've talked about this Ad nauseum, how most of us grew up on iron-fortified food here in the States. I think that's also true for us who grew up across the pond in Europe, those of us who grew up in Australia, other parts of the white world. So uh, most of us have been iron-fortified to the hilt. A cereal called Honey Moon Glow contains extruded whole grains. Extrusion is a, a very um, deleterious process of um, cereal-making. Most cereals are made via extrusion. It locks in all the antinutrients like the phytic acid, it also has almonds and cocoa, both extremely high in oxalic acid, blueberry and carrot concentrates. Carrots are high in oxalic acid, also high in beta-carotene or vitamin A. And also includes canola, rape seed, and or soybean oil. This one's a total winner, you can tell already. Quote natural flavors, more like triple parenthesis natural flavors, and about 13 grams, almost one tablespoon of refined sugar, of course in the form of white sugar and corn syrup. Gosh. The ingredients in blueberry and almonds are similar with the addition of real blueberries embalmed with sugar, glycerin, sunflower oil, and natural flavor. Consumers can also buy sleep-friendly cookies and ice cream with added B6, magnesium, and zinc, candy bars infused with melatonin, and PepsiCo's Driftwell brand of bottled water containing L-theaniline and magnesium. Reported in the Washington Post in March of um, 2023, on the 21st, the author fingers diets high in sugar, saturated fat, and simple carbs are contributing to poor sleep. Simple carbs and sugars will indeed keep you awake by stimulating the release of adrenaline. But the big secret is that the body uses saturated fats and cholesterol to make chill-out, relaxing hormones that help you get to sleep. Also, our sex hormones are made from cholesterol, So if we're not eating saturated fats, we're not going to be horny. We're not going to have a libido. We're not going to have good hormones. So if you need to eat sugar before bed, you're not eating enough protein and fat during the day. Um, Or maybe you're not eating the right types of carbohydrates either. But this is just what a terrible idea to drug yourself with this toxic product before bed because you didn't eat well during the day. And I know from experience, growing up on a very high carbohydrate diet, granted, it wasn't stuff like this. It was a lot of whole grains in many forms, mostly whole grains, like in the, in their raw form cooked, pressure cooked a lot of like, you know, um, pastas, some breads, um, beans, you know, starchy vegetables. Like my whole diet was basically, it was mostly like what they would call today, like kind of like a whole foods vegan diet, but it was macrobiotic. So, we didn't eat a lot of things with oxalic acid. We didn't eat a lot of things that were nightshade. Um, so it was like a, a healthier version, I think. But still, it was it was very low in animal foods besides the occasional dairy and fish and eggs. I was hungry a lot as a kid and had a lot of blood sugar swings. I had dark circles under my eyes. Um, I was always constipated. I was cold. Um, I was. I think looking back, I was probably too lean because I wasn't eating enough saturated fat and meat and then I remember back in the, the lunchroom back when like second grade I ate this actually the first time I ate meat I said earlier in the show the first time I ate meat was 20 um, when I was 24 and that's when I knew I was eating meat but back when I was in second grade I ate bolognese and I thought it was just like sauce and, and uh, pasta I had no idea of course as a kid that people put meat in sauce that was like a foreign idea for myself so I just sat there and I wolfed that entire bowl of pasta down, having no clue that it had meat until some of the other youngsters in the, the lunchroom said "That's there's meat, there's meat in that. Cause everyone knew that I was vegetarian. And as they were saying it, I don't even know if I believe them. I didn't even care. It tasted so good. I hoovered that thing and it was so tasty. And to this day, I love Bolognese, and I always think of that time in the lunchroom when I wolfed it down. It probably wasn't, you know, the best ingredients. Granted, it was, it was the 80s, so it was probably better than any, any lunch um, meal that the youngsters are getting these days. But, yeah, you will get constant blood sugar swings if you don't eat the right food, uh, and that could manifest for a lot of people, and it could be constipation, sleep issues, hormone issues, You could be, like, nasty and crabby and, like, lash out at people. You may need to use um, stimulants like, you know, caffeine or marijuana or other stuff to, like, kind of keep going. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons we see the proliferation of the legalization of marijuana alongside the uh, promotion of the plant-based diets because... When your blood sugar is swinging from, you know, not eating enough protein, like you need something to quote, stay high. But when you eat enough meat and enough lipids, you're naturally high and not in like a deranged way. Like you're like chill high. You're not like deranged high. And that's really what uh, life is about. I've said before on shows, like it's our birthright to be high. Like it's our birthright to live in an ecstatic orgasmic state. Not that every moment has to feel like a full body orgasm. That's not what I mean. But it's our birthright to be healthy and to feel good. And of course, part of that is eating a healthy diet. We've got some comments in the chat. Josh is saying anyone who does the tranny thing are clearly depressed and without life or love of life and definitely victims. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think that the kids, the young among us are the biggest victims of this. Like the men who were older, who may have like a fetish where they want to dress up like women and they get turned on by thinking about themselves as an objectified woman, Woman, I don't think that those are victims. I think that those are like sick misogynists and fetishists. Um, and of course, that's been going on for a long time. Those men usually keep their penis. Some of them don't even get surgery. That's just a, a sick fuck as far as I'm concerned. But the children who are being targeted with the surgeries and the hormones, those are the victims. Josh is also saying the pro-white movement is pretty much dead been taken over by a conspiracy crowd and religious zealots. Yeah, it definitely has. Um, that's one of the reasons I distance myself from it. I know you also, if you shared with me, you have distanced yourself from it, which is a wise move. Um, of course, many of us still feel that way. And we're still aware of it. But I think uh, putting ourselves in that box is, um, is really just it's over, you know, it's like, it's like expired food at this point. Josh was also saying, to be honest, I used to love cereal. LOL. Raisin Bran was the last cereal I ate on occasion. And that's been a few years and less deleterious one. Yeah, probably less deleterious and let's say Fruity Pebbles or Cookie Crisp. I always used to be amazed by the, um, the kids who used to like get to eat things like Cookie Crisp or Cinnamon Toast Crunch for breakfast. I'm thinking like, how do you get away with eating that for breakfast? Cause I grew up like eating like oatmeal and, uh, you know, raisins or something like that. And miso, like twig tea, like that was pretty much my breakfast. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's cereal for me typically was always more of a snack, but, um, a lot of it is just even like the quote healthy cereal that you'd see like at, you know, the whole foods or, you know, the organic market, wherever you shop mm-hmm. online, even a lot of the healthy cereal is not healthy. It's loaded with um, sugars. It's loaded with low quality oils. Um, yeah, it's just something that these days I really don't have a craving for. If I do ever have a craving for it, and it's super rare, there's a brand called One Degree, and they make a brown rice crispy. So it's like Rice crispy Treats, but it's brown rice. And if I was going to have cereal, I would have One Degree um, Brown Rice crispies, And they are good if you're making like your own Rice crispy Treats, which I do kind of love, I'll be honest. Uh, I get like, really good marshmallow fluff, like not the fluff brand, that stuff is sludge, but there's a brand called uh, Toonie, T-O-O-N-I-E, Toonie Marshmallow Fluff. If you mix that with the one degree brown rice cereal and butter, oh, those are so good. I love Rice Krispie treats. I just, I think they're great, but of course the good ones. Josh is saying, what I was driving at about the tranny thing is that I get this feeling, at least from a person I notice at a meeting, that there is no fulfillment. Yeah. That is, um, that's hitting the nail on the head. And it's also like I've heard with a lot of transsexuals is that they keep on awaiting like the hormones, uh, the surgery, uh, the name change, uh, the, the whatever milestone, and then they do all of these things and then they're done doing all these things and then they're like, holy shit, and they're not happy still. And then the feelings of suicide start. So it's a dead end to nowhere. Uh, It's a it's a terrible, terrible thing. It's probably one of the worst things to happen in a long time. And we're all living through this horrible experiment. Um, I don't think it's going to end well for a lot of people who are on that bandwagon, who are actually doing it. And I think the people who are supporting it, uh, whether they're just supporting it, like, in general, or if they're supporting like their child going through it, I think there's going to be a massive backlash. Epiphany is saying I used to love the peanut butter panda puffs. Oh, yeah, I know those. Those are pretty good, too. But these are like snacky things. Like the idea that like you would eat this before bed because like you were starving yourself all day. Like, well, yeah, if you eat like the food pyramid Zog diet with what? It used to have six to 11 servings of grain. I know now it's like the MyPlate. But gosh, I mean, even when I was like eating like that type of diet, like more of like a carbohydrate-based diet back in the day, I still was not eating six to 11 servings. That's just crazy. Okay, so we talked about cereal. Now let's talk a little bit about blood sugar because we're talking about blood sugar. I'm talking about my past with my blood sugar swings. And I just thought something was wrong with me for years. Um, I remember, speaking of cereal, I used to carry this bag of cereal. It wasn't a box, it was a bag of cereal. And it was called puffed corn. It was basically corn pops, which I'm sure all of you listening are familiar with that, especially if you grew up in the States. Corn pops, of course, have like that glaze of corn syrup or sugar on them. This was the same thing, but without the glaze. It was just like the puffed corn. But I remember like even in like my teens and my early 20s, hanging out places and just all of a sudden getting this thing that I would call a hunger attack, I would just have this awful drop in blood sugar and I would have to eat something right away. And oftentimes it would be something like this puff corn. I used to like hang out sometimes with friends like late at the beach and I would just get these awful blood sugar swings. Of course, no one else I was hang out with were getting it. Even the people who were more close to being like um, lacto vegetarians or lacto ovo vegetarians, they weren't getting it. It was just me. So blood sugar. So here's an explanation of blood sugar from kind of like a TCM or like an yin-yang perspective. This is an interesting way of thinking about it as opposed to the way we usually think about it from the Western connotation. But here we go. So when we eat, the process of digestion converts food into glucose, which is yin, which is carried into the blood to the pancreas, where the increased blood sugar level stimulates the production of insulin, which is considered to be very young which is carried into the blood to the liver where it converts excess glucose in the blood to glycogen which is also yang which is then stored in the liver a decrease in blood sugar on the other hand stimulates the secretion of cortical hormones in the adrenal gland and ACTH in the pituitary gland and these hormones are yin which raise the blood sugar level by converting some of the glycogen stored in the blood liver in the liver to glucose in other words in a healthy body The blood sugar level is maintained by an interplay of insulin yang and cortical hormones and ACTH, which are yin. So we see this yin-yang interplay of hormones, just like we see it with organs, just like we see it with the sexes. In a poorly functioning organism, however, the swings in blood sugar levels are much greater. For example, if the insulin supplied by the pancreas is excessive, too much glucose will be converted to glycogen. The blood sugar level will fall and remain low. This condition, which is very common in America, this is from 1973, this information, is called hypoglycemia. It is caused by the overstimulation of the pancreas by excessive quantities of carbohydrates and also indirectly from certain drugs as well. And this book is saying marijuana is one of the drugs that this can cause. And like I've said before, I'm not against carbohydrates. I just think that we have a lot of this diet culture where they tell us eat tons of carbs, whether it's, you know, veganism is like promoting a lot of carbohydrates. The pro-metabolic community is promoting a lot of carbohydrates. And then we have people on the other side, on like keto and the carnivore side, or even the paleo side to an extent, who are more in like the low carbohydrate. I think we have to find the sweet spot for all of us. But I think we run into problems when we eat too many, obviously. And when we don't eat enough, we end up taking in too much of other macronutrients, and that becomes problematic. And we also think about our own history, our age, our sex, our race, our indigenous or ancestral diet, right? I mean, think about when um, Dr. Weston Price was going around and visiting a lot of these people. He went up to see, like, I think, Inuit people, and they were eating kind of like full carnivore diet, right? Was that the healthiest diet? Maybe not, I mean, but it's it's what they had available. And then I think some areas of like the tropics, like in Fiji, like there's an area of people called the Kitavans, their diet is mostly tubers. So it's higher in carbohydrates. And then they get saturated fats from coconuts and tropical fish. Those people don't have obesity or, um, you know, mental illness from eating carbohydrates, like some people like to say who are, who are low carb or zero carb. So it really depends on where you're living. And of course, it would make sense that, in the wintertime or in the north, we'd probably have less availability for carbohydrates. And like, let's say, in the summer where there's an abundance and maybe we would eat more and we'd have more, more fruits, right? So we have to think about this contextually, how it works for us seasonally, racially, etc. If, on the other hand, the insulin supply is inadequate, the liver cannot effectively convert glucose to glycogen. This is diabetes. As the pancreas tires of producing insulin to neutralize the above-mentioned highly yin foods or drugs, or eventually becomes completely exhausted from this effort, excess sugar begins building up in the blood. The blood sugar level then rises and remains high. In other words, excess yin stimulation will first lead to hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and then to diabetes, which is high blood sugar. So we see this... um, complete mechanism of how this happens and how it futzes with blood sugar up and down. Uh, And then it says that the first rise in blood sugar is yin, which uh, increased the combustion of yang, of glucose, which produces waste materials, yin, in the form of water and CO2. This is the cause of increased urination, yin, which causes dehydration, yang, which leads to consumptions of liquid, which is yin. So we see the the cycle, right? The second effect is a secretion of insulin, yang, which causes the conversion of excess glucose back to glycogen, and the blood sugar level goes down, yang. If a person continues using things like marijuana or the deleterious foods, more glycogen is converted to glucose, more combustion, urination, production of insulin, etc., In this process, the supply of glycogen in the liver and the blood sugar level is greatly reduced. This is the case of increased appetites for things like sweets, which oftentimes when people are new to using things like marijuana, they get what's called the munchies and they eat a lot of uh, sweets. But after time, that doesn't happen anymore. After time, they need the marijuana to actually stimulate their appetite in the first place. So it's, it's a very much a double-edged sword, and TCM goes all into this. But the vicious cycle of marijuana, the conversion of glycogen to glucose, increased urination, insulin, the conversion of glucose to glycogen, does not last forever. So when someone is no longer using marijuana or no longer using these deleterious foods, they can no longer have this overproduction of insulin that will be manifested as hypoglycemia, and eventually it'll go back to normal but if you keep on this train of these um, deleterious stimulants um, you know a lifestyle could also be considered deleterious stimulant as well as eating these shit for brains quote foods the pancreas eventually and inevitably tires of producing insulin and becomes exhausted and the result is diabetes which is a very prevalent disease here in the west and there always seems to be a correlation with um diabetes and thyroid disease because when you can't keep your blood sugar correct that will mess with your master gland or your thyroid so it's it's a whole circuit of course they always tell us in in allopathy that it's just oh it's just one thing you know which no it's it's never one thing how could it be one thing when we're a continuous organism with many of these different parts Just to end this um, segment, let me just mention this marijuana addiction thing from the Chinese perspective. And by the way, an update for anyone who's interested in the course that I'm offering, I'm still working on it. Um, The marijuana mitigation course, Cultivating Self-Love. So that's something that is still on tap, but I still plan to put something out in that regard. I know it's something that a lot of people Especially um, a lot of whites uh, struggle with finding ways to mitigate marijuana. I myself have dealt with this. Um, It wasn't fun. It really isn't a fun thing. And a lot of people make a million and one excuses about it. But there always is a way to stop doing something that you don't want to do anymore. So marijuana addiction from a Chinese medical perspective. The active chemical in marijuana, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, creates heat in Chinese medicine, we talk about heat and cold and wind, creates heat in the stomach. The heat manifests as an insatiable hunger. This is the munchies. The fire in the belly just burns up the food, causing you to want to continue eating, seemingly never to get full. Short term, this causes weight gain, the heart rate will rise, some people experience perspiration. So that's the munchies when you first start utilizing. Then, Long-term users no longer get the munchies. Instead, they need to be under the influence to feel any desire to eat. And that is basically the first stage of cannabinoid hypermesis syndrome, what they call CHR. It's classified by some as a, quote, autoimmune disease. Um, I don't believe in the current hypotheses regarding autoimmune disease. That's basically a gaslit way to say your body turned against you. Autoimmune disease is just uh, toxicity. That's what that is. The way to tell a short term from a long-term user is that look at their body type. Long-term users will be thinner. The constant stomach heat of being, quote, stoned eats away at the nutrient stores. They will become apathetic and not have much energy or will to do much of anything. So originally, from the TCM contacts and the Vedic context, marijuana was something that was used um, in sporadic ways, very medicinally, probably wasn't smoked, Um probably was used more in other things like, um, in a, a compound, you know, or it was used uh, ingested, I think, in, in um, the Vedic times, making things like bong and uh, like bung lassis and things like that. And I think the Chinese would make um, herbal uh, mixtures with, you know, more than one herb in them. But as we can see in the modern context, it's uh, completely been perverted and inverted and distorted. Gee, who would have thought, right? And this is what we're left with. So that was just a little bit there about blood sugar and how it relates to something like marijuana. You could also talk about it in the same context, uh, just put the same skeleton over what I talked about. Uh, You can talk about coffee pretty much the same way. You could talk about alcohol the same way as well, especially when these become habitual. That's the problem with most of these substances. If they're used in small amounts, they usually don't pose um, a problem, but when they become habitual and daily, that's when they cause a problem. So it's been an hour. I need to get a sip of water. We're gonna take a little break. I'm gonna play a song right now and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about oxalic acid and animal-based eating. This is From Victim to Victor on White Wellness Radio. I am your host, Tabitha. We'll be back right after this song. This is Tabitha. You were listening from Victim to Victor on White Wellness Radio. That was Atlanta Rhythm Section with So Into You back in 1976. Groovy song. So we are back. We have been talking about a lot of things in the last hour, talking about modern-day mental illness, talking about the sickness and dis-ease of society is basically having no purpose and no spiritual knowledge. We've been talking about blood sugar and how that relates to um, stimulants. So now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something from the Ayurvedic perspective called Prakiti. Now, many of you might have heard the word dosha before. I've talked about this on the show many a times. A dosha is considered to be what's known as a humor or a constitution, but it's kind of the constitution that we acquire from Our choices in life. Our prakiti is basically the constitution that we're born with. So we all have the constitutions that we acquire from our habits, our lifestyle, our food choices, our emotions, you know, basically everything. And then we have what's called our prakiti, which is determined by our constitution at birth. You know, what our moms ate when they were pregnant, uh, what we were fed as kids, um, the circumstances of our conception, um, our race, uh, our sex, um, where we were born, you know, all of these things that we just can't really change that are just immutable. I'm like nowadays people think they can change their race and their sex. And I have news for you. You can't, uh, the best thing to do is just enjoy what you're working with and, and maximize and find ways to optimize what you have. That's the best thing to do as opposed to thinking of ways to change yourself, um, that you can't change it's maybe changing if you have like a foul habit of like eating cupcakes every day maybe you want to change that but you can't change like the immutable things that i just mentioned so this is our prakiti and we all have one of these and it basically governs why some people are able to get away with certain things and some people aren't and of course maybe there's other things that play into that like our emotions and our beliefs with certain things but Here's a little bit just about Ayurveda and then a little bit about Prakiti, and then we're going to go in talking about some plant toxins and some of the popular iterations of animal-based diets. If Ayurveda were a religion, nature would be its goddess, and overindulgence would be the soul's sin she would punish. Ayurveda is meant to allow you to enjoy the pleasures of life up to the point that such enjoyment interferes with your health. Here's an interesting thing that many of us can probably relate to that the modern society pushes. Full-time gratification is, in fact, bondage because the more we consume, the more we become captives of our consumption. Unlimited indulgence makes us less free because we become less self-sufficient. Each of our own addictions to caffeine, sugar, salt, sports, Sports spectaculars, TV game shows, alcohol, drugs, gambling palaces, or other indulgences is another nail in the coffin of our freedom, another restraint to our individual freedom. Most of us don't even know how to indulge properly, and we sicken and die from the side effects of our indulgences. True enjoyment is possible only when there is true health. Yes, and we live in this society where they always want us to be pressing the button for stimulation constantly 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 junk quote foods quote foods are junk because they all taste have all taste and no nutrition and are usually washed down with soft drinks or coffee and that's what's meant by having this constant full-time gratification like if you're constantly swilling all these beverages like you're not living a life of freedom you're a slave essentially Most soft drinks are intensely sweet, and many have the added bonus of caffeine. Coffee is pungent, plus whatever sweet is added with cream and sugar is also full of caffeine. Caffeine is a metabolic credit card, a substance which forces the body to secrete enough hormones to keep us functioning, gratifying ourselves with sweetness in its various forms until we drop from fatigue. Like the fiscal debt we are encouraged to create by Zog, most of us develop crushing burdens of physiological debt by the use of such credit cards. And I've heard others refer to coffee as, imagine your adrenals as like little hats on top of the kidneys. And imagine they're just kind of relaxed and they're kind of sleepy. And what happens when you take the coffee is this, this mean little guy comes out with a whip and he starts lashing and beating on your adrenals to wake up, even when, like, you're just like completely and totally tired. And eventually, how long can you do that for? Eventually, all bills come due. Unlike financial institutions in third-world countries, your organism cannot default on its depths, debts deaths except by dying. Perhaps diabetes develops a dis-ease in which the body can no longer cope with the tremendous quantities of sweets in which your mind requires. And begins to discard it undigested, or maybe your thyroid or adrenals collapse from the debt burden, and your system goes on a general strike. So eventually, the body isn't able to process the burden of foods that it is given. And like we were talking about in the blood sugar um, thing, when I was talking about you know marijuana in particular, but I think it could also be um, applied to things like uh, coffee and alcohol. Is that all of these things, while well, they they serve a purpose to soothe us in a certain sense. They also take away our nutrients or they make it harder for us to absorb nutrients. And like I had said in the beginning of the show, it makes it harder for us to actually see that there is a problem because we just kind of fall into this, ah, everything's okay now. When it's really not. And when you're doing that over and over and over again, it's easy to forget. Uh, it's like, it's a, it's more than a bad habit. It's it becomes a bad belief in a certain way. So that's a bit about prakiti, about um, how you know Mother Nature basically um, it punishes the um, the overindulgence. And we live in this culture where it's constant overindulgence. You know, people speaking about how it's okay to do a Netflix binge, right? That that's just okay to sit uh, your haunches on the couch. And just watch ten episodes of a show—that's completely and totally okay, especially during *Orion AI*. That was lauded. You were a hero if you were doing that during Orient AI*. That's not okay to do that. Um, and maybe if you're if you're sick or something and you're relaxing and you need to, but even so, if I was sick, I wouldn't be doing that. I would be watching like an interesting movie or reading a cookbook or something. I just—I don't know. I just my idea of entertainment may be very different than other people. But we can see clearly that overindulgence in its many forms, overindulgence of the things that denutrify us, keep us in victim consciousness, and then it makes it harder for us to basically get the sustenance that we need to become victorious. Hand rubbing intensifies. So now let's change it up a little bit and let's talk about oxalates. This is, I think, from my knowledge and my study, to be the most deleterious of all the plant. Toxins, uh, and that would be what they also call oxalic acid. Josh is saying, "Gonna go work out for about an hour. I'll catch the archive. Great show as always. Thank you, and catch you later." So yeah, let's talk about oxalic acid now. I think, or also known as oxalates. I think that this, like I said, is uh, the most deleterious of the of the um, the anti nutrients. And like I said before, there's many. There are lectins, saponins. Uh, tannins, phytates, the list goes on. And of course, there are ways with cooking and soaking and sprouting and fermenting to lessen them, not to totally get rid of all of them, but to lessen them. But I think that oxalates are probably the most deleterious. And the funny thing about oxalates is that they are lurking in so many supposed, quote, health foods, Like a lot of foods out there that maybe, you know, if we're aware that they're not really health foods, but it's lurking in so many, quote, health foods out there that really aren't health foods at all. Um, But nevertheless, some people still believe these to be health foods. Let me just find my notes on oxalates. Okay, here we go. So when you become oxalate aware and oxalates are kind of like PUFA, you can't eat a zero oxalate diet. You can't eat um, a zero PUFA diet. You can find ways to be conscious of these. Just like you can't eat a zero vitamin A diet. You can find ways to be conscious of this, but you can't, if you wanted to be 100%, you'd have to basically become a breatharian. And that's not an option, I don't think, for anybody listening. I even um, wonder if that's actually reality. I think that that's probably just like a hoax. Um, or maybe someone living in the mountains can do it or something, but I don't know. It's not something I'm looking into. And I don't know if anyone listening is really looking to just survive on, on breathing and on, on the sun. But anyway, when you become oxalate aware, it can help with a lot of stuff, especially if maybe you're dealing with something and it's kind of like mystery and you're not totally sure as to what it is. But once you become oxalate aware, it can help you in many ways, relieving pain, restoring your energy, healing and recovering more quickly, aging more gracefully, even if you don't have like a serious medical problem, expanding your food choices, getting fit and enjoying your food and your life. So there's a lot of things to be said for this. Um, And it's interesting to note that animal foods have no oxalates. That's number one. And of course, probably some people are wondering like, oh, she just talked all this shit about coffee. I hope coffee doesn't have oxalates. Coffee also is low oxalates. Or anyone out there probably like, whew. Okay, I can still have the coffee. Yes, coffee is low in oxalates. Tea, on the other hand, especially black tea, is not. Uh, Black tea is uh, a moderate source of oxalic acid. Green tea, much less. Um, Black tea in general has more caffeine. From um, the perspective of, um, I think, TCM, they consider the green to be more healthful because it has less tannins and it can also help with uh, dampness Uh, of draining, you know, dampness from the body. And it seems that, you know, just living in the West, it's easy to get damp um, for sure. So that's a little bit about oxalates, a little bit of an introduction. So now what else can I share about oxalates? So oxalates are organic compounds that occur naturally in plants. So even if you use the best soil, the best growing conditions you could possibly ever imagine, they're still going to be in the plants. It's just like if you use the best um, the best thing you can do with, like, let's say, growing your own organic marijuana, it's still going to uptake cadmium from the soil. And even if you say, oh, I'll do it hydroponically, I'll avoid the cadmium, you're still going to be dealing with a plant that is serotonergic, estrogenic, um, has carotenoids or vitamin A, has PUFA, and yes, marijuana is a source of oxalic acid. When you smoke weed, and you get that cough in your throat, that like kind of feeling, which you don't get when you smoke tobacco, but you get it when you smoke weed. Those are the oxalic acid crystals. So that's what that is. There's a post on my Telegram on the Tabby Yoga channel, I think last week, where I showed a molecule of oxalic acid under high um, microscope. You know, utilization on my page. So there are oxalates in marijuana plant use. Oxalate plants use oxalates to regulate their own internal mineral content and of course to help defend against predators. So this many times in the broadcast, plants have no teeth and they have no feet. So they have to utilize the plant toxins, which makes total sense. We have our Sardius saying, first time catching you live in quite a while. It's great to catch you live. I'll listen to the replay later and see what I missed before now. Oh, I'm glad you're here. It's nice to be able to do a live show. It's been It's been a while since I've done one, but uh, I always enjoy the energy of live. Um, It's always nice to kind of just put it out there in real time and have people people listen to it um, while it's happening. So I'm glad you're here. So in the body, oxalic acid that we get from eating plants combines with many minerals. This binding limits the absorption of vinyl nutrients, including iron, calcium and magnesium. So foods rich in oxalates include many of the common fruits and vegetables. So what are these foods you may be asking yourself? Cocoa, chocolate, not white chocolate, in case you're wondering that. So chocolate in general, it's the cacao paste. It's not the cacao butter. So chocolate, beets, sesame seeds, rhubarb is incredibly high. I don't know how people are eating a lot of rhubarb, but just so you know, rhubarb is incredibly high. I remember as a youngster Uh, knowing that you couldn't eat rhubarb raw. And this is one of the reasons why. It always looks like red celery to me. I'm not sure if everyone else thinks thinks that. Um, But it usually is cooked with a lot of sugar, sometimes strawberries. Um, Oftentimes you'll see strawberry rhubarb pies or crisps or cobblers around April. Sweet potato, incredibly high. Um, And spinach, also incredibly high. And almonds, those are like the highest of the high. Oxalates are responsible for the fact that virtually none of the iron present in spinach makes it into your or Popeye's body. And think about the whole Popeye um, propaganda, like, oh, I'm getting strong from eating spinach. No, no. If someone's eating tons of spinach, like that's not really going to help. And notice, too, let's let's talk about something else in regards to this. You notice back in the day, if you look at all these spinach recipes, it was always cooked with a lot of dairy, cream spinach, spinach with like these cheesy sauces, things like that. That's because the calcium in dairy kind of helps buffer the oxalic acid. So that was an ancestral way of preparing it. Now we have people, because of the whole vegan trend, everyone's scared of dairy, right? So now they're either just sauteing it or cooking it without any dairy, or even worse, they're doing like raw smoothies of spinach. And think about how a lot of people could wake up in the morning, they could do a smoothie of spinach, cocoa, almonds, maybe add some chia seeds in there, which were also really high in oxalic acid. And they could buzz that whole thing up and that could be like their morning beverage and they could be like, why do I feel terrible? I can have terrible joint pain, just feel like they're totally breaking down and they would never be able to pinpoint, oh gosh, it's this smoothie. And a lot of these foods too can cause um, kidney disease too. Oxalic acid deeply affects the kidneys. And think about what TCM, traditional Chinese medicine says. The kidneys are the door to life. The kidneys are thought to be a very um, very important organ in the TCM modality. It doesn't really get a lot of play in the Western one. Only when someone needs to go on dialysis or get a kidney transplant are people talking about kidneys. But if your renal system is bad, um, that's that's not good stuff. So here are some fast facts about oxalates or oxalic acid. Oxalate crystals can suppress the immune system and reduce mitochondrial activity, so lowering the metabolism. Um, They form from plant-based foods, some more than others. Oxalates occur in over 200 plant families. Oxalates contribute to kidney stone formation. Nutritional deficiencies can contribute to oxalate sensitivity and make it difficult to expel them once they are formed. There are both soluble and insoluble forms of oxalates. Soluble includes potassium and sodium oxalate. Insoluble is calcium oxalate. There is a significant connection between oxalate crystals and fungal infections in the intestine. There is a connection between oxalate crystals and heavy metals in the body too. Think about that one. And oxalobacter formagenes is the only known bacteria besides lactobacillus and bifidiobacterium species that have the capacity to digest oxalate crystals. And I did a show a while ago where I talked about veganism and oxalic acid, and I had a guest on, um, a a fellow named Damon, who many of you probably remember, who was part of the um, pro-white community. He's, He's passed now, but we did a great show together. And we talked about the racial differences of oxalic acid and that blacks, interestingly enough, have more of this oxalobacter form genes, which is this uh, oxalic acid bacteria that the body actually manufactures itself. It doesn't come from the consumption of oxalic-rich acid foods, but it helps in the digestion of oxalic acid-rich foods. So this leads me to believe that Certain of these plant foods, and maybe a plant-based or vegan diet in general is more um, more easy or more geared towards blacks to be able to do than it is for like, let's say, a white person who's like from the north, who eats tons of meat, who eats tons of dairy. Like think about the Nordic diets. Think about the diets in Iceland. Like I saw something the other day about Iceland saying that they're the happiest people in the world and that they have one of the best diets in the world. Now, what's their diet based on? Meat. Typically, it's things like reindeer, so not as much like beef and lamb and bison, but still red meat. Uh, Not too much chicken or pork, so basically it's red meat, it's fish, and it's dairy. That's the basis of their diet. And yes, of course, they do eat seasonal plant foods. Absolutely, it's not like full-on zero-carb carnivore like the Inuit. But they're the happiest people in the world, And they're eating a really good diet, which actually I think happens to be, you know, lowish in PUFA too, because they're not eating a ton of um, chicken and pork. And they're probably eating a little bit of fatty fish, but um, probably enough in context. It's not not causing an issue. But it's very interesting to see how certain races have this bacteria that they can digest the oxalic acid better. Could that be because maybe blacks have a closer lineage to um, other... You know, antiquated versions of, you know, man or something like that, or primate, where they're able to digest the bacteria in a way that it's less deleterious to them than it would be from like a very white northern person who just doesn't have that constitution. Just like sometimes we think about things like dairy and Asians having a lot of problems eating dairy. Oftentimes people say that blacks can't digest dairy, but I don't know if that's necessarily true because we have the Maasai in Africa whose entire diet is meat a little bit, but basically milk and blood, like their version of a strawberry milkshake is milk and blood, and they are healthy. They're very lean. They're very tall. They have this beautiful velvet skin, um, but they have no problem with milk. Granted, it's raw milk. It's probably A2, which means that it's non-hybridized, the animal, so the casein is a lot easier to digest. But it's very interesting to to understand with oxalic acid and also with, with dairy that Our background, our racial background, which of course cannot be changed, contrary to some beliefs that people have these days, plays a huge role in what we can and cannot eat. So how do we get the buildup of oxalic acid in the body? Two ways. By the metabolic process in the body, which is endogenous, and exogenous by eating these oxalate-rich foods, And if people are carrying a gene called LCN2, it has been shown to contribute to the endogenous oxalate production. Gastrointestinal microbes have also been shown to be major exogenous uh, contributors. The microorganisms can use foods to produce oxalic crystals by binding oxalic acid with various minerals. So we've talked about a couple of foods in the beginning, but there's also soy Um, especially unfermented soy. Like if you're eating a little bit of like soy sauce, I wouldn't too much worry about that. But if you're like chugging the soy milk, the tofu, I mean, there's other reasons why you'd want to avoid that. Spinach we talked about, Swiss chard, beet greens, potatoes. Sorry, everybody who loves potatoes, but they have um, oxalic acid. The skin now has quite a bit of it. So if you want to peel them, you'll lessen your oxalic acid load. Many nuts and seeds, the majority of nuts and seeds, but nuts and seeds also have PUFA, so there's many reasons why you might want to go lean on those. Wheat bran, many beans do, especially the white beans. Not all. uh, Black-eyed peas and split peas are low. Dried fruit as a whole has oxalic acid. Chocolate, we mentioned that, and uh, buckwheat. Uh, Anyone with chronic digestive issues has more of um, a chance or propensity of getting sick from oxalates um, they can also contribute to leaky gut if anyone had a history of repeated or extended use of antibiotics or like an acne treatment that could make them more susceptible chronic yeast infections more susceptible uh, any type of kidney impairment you're more susceptible especially if you had a family history of kidney problems which isn't of course a curse for you but it just means that the same um, habits could be you know, pass down like the programming, or it could be that maybe like that, just those, that maybe the oxalic acid could pass from generation to generation. I don't know. But when you have too many oxalates, you also become deficient in B1 and B6. B1 is thiamine, very important. Pork, believe it or not, which has been incredibly villainized, is a really good source of thiamine. Uh, B6 is also really uh, important, which is high in, most of these are high in animal products, of course, and in meats and things like that. Uh, Magnesium is important too, because the oxalic acid uh, binding will actually cause a um, deficiency in magnesium and uh, this can cause high blood pressure uh, impair your immunity and also cause calcification of the arteries so making sure you're having enough minerals and vitamins in your diet super important obviously epiphany is saying kiwi is extremely high in oxalates yes absolutely it's the highest of fruits thank you for mentioning that Uh, under a microscope it looks like shards of glass yeah and if you have a really high powered blender and you're able to blend like all of it, including like the seeds, like in a Vitamix. Then you're really getting all of it. Um, blackberries are also very high in oxalic acid. Raspberry, to an extent. Strawberry, so so. And blueberries are on the lower side. They build up, um, uh, and they they build up in the body, and they're excreted via the kidneys. Um, but excess urinary oxalate can lead to buildup in the kidneys. Uh, Renal failure could also happen. That's of course on like the the far end of things. There's also been a link with autism and oxalic acid, which is very interesting considering that a lot of these quote healthy diets that a lot of women are promoted to eat during pregnancy and preconception during breastfeeding, like, you know, these spinach smoothies, uh, this is, this is not healthy stuff. I I personally think spinach tastes, terrible, especially raw. If I'm going to have a salad, it's going to be something like iceberg, which was totally villainized. Oh gosh, don't eat iceberg. It's got no nutrients in it. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we don't want all those quote nutrients in our food. Maybe a nice crunchy iceberg salad is exactly what we want next to our steak. I don't know. I like iceberg. Immune deficiencies, another thing. Joint issues, big problem for people. Oxalates can cause lots of joint issues. Um, Arthritis, things like that. So I know this is a lot of information. Maybe you're not familiar. with. Maybe you are. Maybe you needed a refresher on it. So what are some things we can eat that um, are not high in oxalates? Some veggies. Let's start out with some veggies. Cucumber. Basically all the cruciferous vegetables, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower. Then of course you want to consider that eating these raw is not great because they have goitrogens and they can inhibit thyroid function. They can block iodine absorption. So if you are going to eat them, you've got to well cook them, have them with like a little bit of saturated fat, like some butter, and just don't overdo it. Zucchini, artichoke, avocado, peas, asparagus, carrots are considered moderate. Some people say they're actually higher, um, It really depends what list you look at. If you go to a person's website, uh, she's the expert on it. She herself had like really bad oxalate poisoning from like a lifetime of eating like Swiss chard and sweet potatoes. Sally K. Norton, check her website out. She's got some great free guides on there. So if you're interested in learning more about this for your own health or sharing it with friends and family, she's got a lot on there. She even has information about oxalate dumping because you don't just want to give them up cold turkey because then you'll start to get a reaction like joint stuff and stomach stuff and headaches, sore throat, bladder pain, etc. some mental symptoms like depression, anxiety, brain fog. So you want to like titrate this down. So if you're interested in doing this and you've been someone who's kind of OD'd on a lot of these foods, you might want to uh, look at her website, but just for the time being, wanted to give everyone a bit of um, a primer. On how all that, how all that works, and uh, how we can just you know think about ways that maybe you have some mystery thing going on. Maybe you know you've been to Doctor Z, maybe you've been to Doctor Z Light, and no one can figure out what's going on. But it's important to know this type of stuff because um, oftentimes we have to kind of be our own detectives in this world. So maybe that'll help somebody out there. It doesn't help you. Maybe it'll help someone who you know. Okay, moving on from that, I just wanted to mention a little bit about um, dairy. And dairy actually is a good food that can help kind of uh, chelate some of the oxalic acid out of the body. So that's that's helpful to know, of course. But also you have to be careful with dairy because there's a lot of dairy out there that can be not so healthy, of course. Uh, and then of course there's other ones out there that are healthy. So I want to talk specifically today about the A1 um, protein in dairy. This is a really important topic, I think, that doesn't really get too much information out there. I think a lot of people are obsessed with the lactose and thinking, oh, it's lactose intolerance or, oh, it's it's the fat. Um, I think it's the casein what they call casomorphine. And that's actually, it's an opioid. That's why for a lot of people, if you talk to people who are vegans or vegetarians, they'll say, oh, I um, the hardest food for me to quit was dairy. It was cheese because it has natural opioids in it, as does uh, iceberg lettuce, by the way, just so you know. But the beta casomorphine, which is in A1 milk. Now, what is A1? A1 is what they call cow dairy, which has come from a hybridized cow. And most of the dairy that you get in the store these days, they are getting better. I have seen some A2 milks lately, which is good to see. Granted, they're pasteurized. And there is, I think, a goat milk in the store too. Keep in mind that all goat dairy, all sheep, camel, um, water buffalo, donkey, all these alternative dairies, these are all naturally A2. But cows have been hybridized, miscigenated, whatever you want to call it, and most of them now have A1, which is this very inflammatory uh, casein. So if you are going to eat dairy, I would, I would highly suggest that you switch to the A2 varieties that lack the beta-casomorphine. There's still going to be an opioid effect, but it's not going to be as potent. So that effect you get from the beta caseomorphine from A1 uh, casein in milk is going to be lessened if you take milk that is from a2 cows or if it's from sheep or goat probably going to be a little harder to source something like donkey or camel milk so the beta case can cause brain fog slow digestive tract hair loss loss of libido loss of motivation and um, some of the hormones can cause acne also bloating and water weight gain. So I think that's why sometimes the dairy can cause weight gain for some people. And People always think it's like the fat or the lactose. It's not. It's the protein. And for some people, the protein in general is just not conducive for their body, and they do far better with proteins from meats, you know, uh, two-legged meat like fowl, uh, or four-legged meat like hogs and red meat. And remember, there's more of red meat than just beef. Beef is great, but there's bison, there's lamb, there's there's goat, moose, uh, venison, and there's you know, there's all these different meats out there that someone could be eating. So we have two issues with the dairy. We have the A one, which is the hybridized animal. So that could be ameliorated easily by finding a two. And of course, we have the pasteurization too, which also kind of denatures the casein. So that's something on top of the A1 and the A2. And then we also have the opioids in dairy, which for some people can elevate their prolactin and also elevate their estrogen. And if you have high prolactin on a blood test, chances are you have high estrogen as well. Most doctors don't test for prolactin. Some gynos do, but most doctors don't. And um, that's how people can sometimes have a negative reaction with dairy. That's why sometimes you'll see these people who were doing more of the low carb or zero carb, like the carnivore crew, they'll be doing butter, ghee, hard cheese, and cream, because all of those things are low or no casein, but they're also lower in lactose. And a lot of those people are against carbohydrates. Although now we have kind of like a different segments of that diet where we have people who are doing those diets but they're also doing honey and dairy you know milks which of course has lactose it's a sugar and also fruit so just because someone is carnivorous doesn't mean that they're low carb just because someone's vegan I mean someone might be doing vegan keto I can't think of a a worse diet than vegan keto that'd be Loaded with oxalates, most likely. Loaded with PUFAs. That's got to be one of the worst of the worst out there. So a little bit of food for thought in regards to um, milk um, and know that it's the A1 protein, the casein, that is what makes it inflammatory, albeit the opioids in dairy can still be problematic for some people. That's why traditionally in Ayurveda, milk was something that was drank later in the day it wasn't drank in the morning which is interesting because here in the west we have people you know splashing it into coffee eating cereal making smoothies and they have their dairy early in the day but traditionally in um, ayurvedic culture it was more of a nighttime food so maybe you want to switch it up and have it at night instead and also something too, I'm going to mention in regards to dairy and meat and Ayurveda. We are talking about Ayurveda earlier in the show. We have this Ayurvedic diet, which, of course, is very much on the vegetarian side. Still, we have these remnants of, you know, yogurt and ghee and milk, which have survived the test of time. And usually it's more of a lacto diet. It's not strict vegan. It's definitely not eggs for whatever reason that is. Um, but nowadays, of course, with the push for the, the full on plant-based bullshit, they have... Um, pushed kind of more of um, a vegan version of Ayurvedic diets, but the old school Ayurvedic texts are all about meat. So I'm thinking somewhere along the line, you know, everything has been perverted, Ayurveda, TCM, literally everything. But at some point down the line, they removed the meat for uh, the obvious reasons to control people, to make them, you know, less horny, less powerful, less victorious, you know, less attractive, smaller too. People used to have much bigger stature years ago. Um, People are getting smaller as a whole. I also have a theory people used to have larger genitals um, years ago, like men would have larger um, penises, women probably have like a larger clitoris and labia with like a more sensitive, you know, yoni. So this all comes from basically multi-generational devitalization. And then on the, on the, flip side this is actually kind of funny we live in a culture where of course for a man there's there's no limit on how big your penis can be you know bigger bigger is better right but for women if they have like uh, labia that are like a little larger or bigger they've got to get rid of that they've got to have some surgeon you know excise that and laser it off laser off the most sensitive part of their body because gosh it's disgusting right the misogyny is so deep in this culture. It is. It is so, so, so deep. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be a variation between everyone's genitals, and just because someone's labia looks different doesn't mean they're supposed to shave it off, right? It's so sad um, to hear, like when you know young gals have done all this, um, all this surgery to themselves. Like I posted on the, the other day, and it showed what you know the quote um, quote beauty or triple parentheses, beauty would be in this modern world. You know, fake breasts, um, fake blonde hair, probably a a yoni that's like a labioplasty, what they call like the Barbie yoni, like basically looks like a tranny. For the most part, it looks like a scrotum that was tucked in to look like a pseudo yoni. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, But this is what they think is like hot, there's nothing hot about not being yourself, and like I said at the back at the beginning of the show, when you don't know yourself, you lack spiritual knowledge. So like, how could it be hot to chop your genitals off if you're a tranny, or you know, cut off part of your labia if you're a woman? Like, you don't know yourself, you can't. It can't be hot if you don't know yourself. It's not possible. But back to what I was talking about in regards to meat and Ayurveda. Just wanted to share a couple of quotes from some old texts. The text, the Shatapatha Brahmana, states that meat is the best kind of food. According to the Bhagavat, nothing equals meat for the promotion of health and substance of the body. Another ancient scripture of Ayurveda, the Bhava Prakash, states the meat of freshly killed animals is like Amrit the ultimate life-giving fluid that sustains the divine. And oftentimes the nectar that comes out of a woman's yoni is known to be um, referred to as amrit. So think about that. Fresh meat and basically the um, elixir of life, right? Interesting. And of course, what are we told in this inverted culture? Stay away from um, bodily secretion. Stay away from yoni nectar. Stay away from semen there could be aids lurking in it right not that oh maybe this is a life giving fluid the inversions just are their minds ogling they really are and finally the charaka samhita which has been stated to be the oldest ayurvedic text states the following this is in sanskrit sharira Brihane, nanyat kadyam mamsa dwishiate which translates to for the promotion and nourishment of the body No other food item is better than meat. So there's been so much propaganda about what to eat. And um, I mean, I feel like I'm living proof personally, because I'm a kid that grew up basically eating like mostly plant-based diet. And now I don't, you know, I've got, you should see my deep freeze. I just got a new deep freeze. I've got pig ears. I've got testicles. I've got tails, thyroids, hearts. Um, I have the other stuff too. I've got shanks. Um, I've got a lot of fun stuff in there. I'm not afraid to cook any of this. Like there was a time when I was cooking for people years ago and I was like pesco, pescatarian, whatever at the point. And I was like feeling squeamish, like actually like handling just like boneless chicken for a client. So I've come a long way from all of this. And I'm thankful that I'm here now and know these things. I wish I had grown up like more immersed in, This culture, because I feel like I would have been able to root deeper into my own spiritual knowledge a lot earlier on, had I come to this realization, but I guess I had other realizations and was um, aware of other things at at an early age, which I'm thankful for, and maybe other people weren't, and maybe they had the meat thing. So, you know, here it is, but just a little bit there about oxalates and a one casein and uh, the power of meat and how it really is food. I think in certain languages, maybe, maybe German, uh, maybe I'm incorrect in this assertion, but they talk about the word meat, meaning the same thing as food. Like that was food and everything else was just, you know, side dishes essentially. So Pia is saying Maple Hills Kefir, highest quality. What do you think about fermentation? Oh yeah, I know that brand of Kefir. It's a pretty good brand uh, in general. I think fermentation is um, a bit of a mixed bag. I think it depends on the person. Also, I think it depends on the the strains. Like certain strains are less agreeable. And I think for a while with the whole probiotic trend, which is going on maybe 20, 20 years now, we've been of the belief that the more bugs, the better. Which may not be true. Some people actually may be better with with less probiotics or certain strains. There's even been research or studies where people were not good with certain strains. Certain strains actually were causing like low mood and depression for certain people. So I think it really depends. With kefir and yogurt, of course, you look on the back of the package and there are different strains. So I think you have to find one that really agrees with you. That being said, when you ferment something, you actually augment the casein a little bit, just like when you pasteurize something. So for some people if it's A1, the fermentation may augment the casein to an extent that it actually may be more digestible for them. I personally am not a huge fan of kefir. I went through a time when I was uh, drinking, I guess, quite a bit of it, and um, it gave me this really gnarly rash. Um, Maybe I was having a histamine reaction. Maybe it was the vitamin A in it. Maybe it was a bacteria that didn't agree with me, but I ended up getting like this nasty kind of eczema thing, like right around like the joint of um, where my elbows are on my arms. And um, once I stopped eating that, and I was was actually eating it with liver too. I was eating raw liver and like sucking it down with the rock of fear. I pretty much at this point don't eat a lot of fermented foods. I do a little bit of yogurt. I do a little bit of cheese. I'm not big on the vegetable ferment, so I'm not big on sauerkraut and stuff like that for the most part. Occasionally I'll drink alcohol, maybe occasionally I'll drink kombucha. But I think that it's not the panacea of great health that many of us have been told, like, oh, fermented foods are essential. Did our ancestors do fermentation? Yeah, I think they did. Uh, Maybe they were fermenting foods because they didn't want them to go bad and that's how they got you know by and so yes it is traditional sourdough of course is another ferment um, even coffee is fermented so is chocolate um, a lot of our favorite foods are actually fermented in the culture that we don't even think about it but I think it really depends on the person if someone's having any type of like histamine or, or rash or sneeze or digestive issue they may want to rethink ferments And there are some people, like people who are more on the pro-metabolic side of things, like um, Dr. Ray Pete, he believed that all fermented foods, including yogurts, kefirs, um, even black pepper is actually fermented. Teas are fermented too, apple cider vinegar. But he specifically believed that apple cider vinegar, black pepper, and yogurt were carcinogenic because of the fermentation. And his belief from that was that... When you ferment something, you create an overabundance of lactic acid, which is that buildup that we get in our muscles when we work out. And he has traced back from his uh, body of work that people who have an excess of lactic acid in their body have a metabolism that's similar to someone who has cancer and that a patient or an individual or a person that has cancer typically always has an excess of lactic acid so his reasoning behind that was that they are carcinogenic so that like i said there's a lot of beliefs like you know don't eat any carbs don't eat any ferments don't eat any meat like there's a lot of no poofas like there's like not even a poofa from like let's say um like meat like i'm against eating you know seed oils and shit but like if what if you're having like chicken with the skin that's pastured like that's not okay like to have a couple of times So I think we really have to figure out what works for us. But if you're having any symptoms from something, pull it out of your diet for a couple of weeks and then maybe put it back in and see how that works for you. That's all I would say. Yeah. But everyone's individual on this, of course. And I think overall, it really comes down to many things. Ancestry, uh, history with food, uh, where we're at in our life. Um, Are we doing a lot of weight training? You know, are we pregnant? You know, like, uh, did we just recover from surgery? Like these are, these are things we have to think about when we're thinking about our diets. And it looks like we're running late on um, time. So I'm going to have to actually postpone some of the information about animal-based diets. I'll actually turn that into a show unto itself where we're going to talk about different uh, iterations of animal-based diets, just like I've talked in the past about different iterations of plant-based diets. So that should actually be a really fun show. But to end this show, let's see what else I could mention. Um, oh, yeah, just the Icelandic diet that I, that I alluded to earlier. Um, we'll end it with that, and I'll, I'll save this information on the animal-based diets, which seem to be getting very popular. A lot of people are kind of burnt out with the full-on carnivore and keto, and of course they're burnt out by veganism and the standard American diet. So a lot of them are kind of doing animal-based with seasonal carbs, which I think is a nice way to go about things. That's kind of where I'm at right now in my diet, but uh, it's a little way to wet our appetites for the next show. Let's close with this information about the Icelandic diet. And Iceland's thought to be one of the happiest places in the world. And um, I think it's racially homogenous, which is probably one of the reasons it's a very nice place to live. Although I did hear a report in the last couple of years that some rabbi and his family were moving there, and of course he was talking about how anti-Semitic the country was. or you know you know the recipe by now. It's always the same recipe with different ingredients. But anyway, here's a recipe, or here's an article actually. It's about uh, nine years old, but I think it still stands to be true if they're eating their you know indigenous diet. The Icelandic diet of fresh fish and high quality meat is the healthiest in the world. And I want to um, reiterate that fresh fish and high quality meat. Now when they do these studies and they talk about red meat causing cancer, keep in mind that they're not just talking about fresh meat, they're talking about aged meat, which I'm not really a big fan of aged meat. I know here at many of the steakhouses, especially in New York, you pay a lot of money for an aged steak, which I think is actually kind of funny because I always prefer a fresh steak personally. It seems that all the countries where they speak English Aged steaks are more of a thing. And in the non-English speaking countries, they think aged meat is gross. So those studies about red meat always include aged meat. It includes processed meat like bacon, cold cuts, and hot dogs. It includes cured meat like salami. So, and, so it includes all of this, not just fresh red meat. And also they look at a population who eats red meat who also may drink Mountain Dew. Or spend six hours a day watching television or never exercise or have terrible relationships. So it, these studies are always flawed and they always cherry pick them to promote their, you know, their, their agendas. So there was a documentary done about nine years ago on the world's best diet. And it revealed that an Icelandic diet consisting of fresh fish, high quality meats and dairy products among the healthiest in the world. And they're saying the Icelandic diet is is closely followed by the diet of Italy and Greece. I thought they actually had higher rates of obesity in Italy and Greece than they did other parts of Europe, but um, maybe that was different nine years ago. So the show um, traveled around the world to examine the dietary habits of different countries, revealing how eating habits have changed over the last 50 years and how this affects people's health. So yeah, you can't go wrong with a diet of fresh fish and high quality meat and dairy. And if you look around, um, there's a lot of power lifters that come out of Iceland and they seem to be really healthy and they look pretty good because if they're on their traditional diet, it's rich in the foods that humans are designed to eat. And basically what it comes down to, and I'll just leave with this little morsel. And like I said, we'll uh, go into this deeper on the, on the next broadcast, but... A diet, basically, in a nutshell, if people are like, gosh, what am I supposed to eat? There's so much conflicting information. I don't even know what to eat anymore. It's pretty simple. Sufficient carbohydrates, which may look different for you than it does for me or someone else. Sufficient protein. Fats from saturated sources. Avoiding toxins and irritating foods. So That's pretty much the recipe. Making sure you're getting sufficient carbohydrates, of course, that are good quality, that digest well, that don't cause a buildup of gas or anti-nutrients. High quality protein, and by protein I mean animal protein, bioavailable. Saturated fats. Avoiding toxins, so that may mean things like avoiding certain plant toxins like oxalates, which we spoke of today. And avoiding irritating foods. Pretty simple. So if anyone's out there thinking like, gosh, I've got to switch it up with my diet a little bit, I'm not really sure where I'm going, that's an easy formula to get you started. So I think we will leave it for um, today, because I only have a couple of minutes left right now, and then we'll keep the information that I just spoke of for the uh, next broadcast. So we went through a lot of things, say talking about plant toxins, talking about um, A1 dairy, Talking a little bit about Ayurveda, uh, talking about the modern day mental illnesses, talking about the insane idea of a, quote, sleep cereal, talking about blood sugar and stimulants, and how all of this really works into a grander plan of us either taking the fork in the road to victimhood or to victory. And I would say to choose victory. So I think we'll be closing out the show right now. I am your host, Tabitha. You have just finished listening to From Victim to Victor on White Wellness Radio. Be sure to catch all the broadcasts on White Wellness Radio. Be sure to follow me on Telegram and Instagram. And I'm wishing everyone a wondrous day in this big white world until we meet again. Satnam.